Greetings, everyone. This is Garner Ted Armstrong from Tyler, Texas. In just a few moments, I'm going to take you to Jerusalem for the special sermon I delivered there under very difficult conditions, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about what happened. When we drove from Mount Scopus, from our hotel, over to the Mount of Olives, we had to go through a police checkpoint where only the day before we had seen a group of Israeli soldiers with their Uzi submachine guns arresting a young Palestinian, or I had seen that when I was by that same intersection. All over the city from time to time there had been rock-throwing incidents, as I think in the context of the sermon that I am about to give to you from there, I may have mentioned the 70-year-old gentleman, Israeli, who was the proprietor of a furniture store, who was stabbed in the back, his wife of 50 years came in to find him lying in a pool of blood after an Arab customer allegedly had come in and asked him to see a piece of furniture in the back room, and the elderly gentleman was killed while we were there. That very same day, a little girl of about 11 had been taken to the hospital with a fractured skull because a stone had come through the windshield of the car in which she was riding, and there had been other stoning incidents, and only a couple of days earlier there had been the four Israeli women who were stabbed to death at a bus stop in a residential area of the city of Jerusalem. In many years previous, I had stayed at the Intercontinental Hotel on the top of the Mount of Olives when it was in Jordanian hands, and then in subsequent years, even after the 67 war, had stayed in that hotel because it was operated by Arabs, by Palestinians. But after the constant rebellion that has been going on for a couple of years over there now with all the stabbings and the rock-throwing incidents and the insurrection of the Palestinians. It has been like a nightmare because all of the tourists have been frightened away from the Arab sections of the city. So here was the old Intercontinental Hotel with its arches and beautiful stone driveway and balustrades and planting areas absolutely deserted, just like an empty, deserted area with graffiti around on the walls, with only a couple of young Arab boys up there with an ancient old donkey that they were hawking for tourists and some panoramic pictures of the city for those few American tourists who would dare to go over to that area. Well, I went over there with a little handheld tape recorder and trying to get out of their sight left uh, Mr. Charlie Gross and my son Mark Armstrong up above with the automobile, and I descended some steps down just above an old cemetery and sat down there on those cold stone steps and began to do that sermon about the sufferings of Jesus Christ. I think I commented a little bit before I got into the actual context of the sermon about some of the interviews I'd been conducting there with both Israeli and Palestinian leaders, but it was a kind of a tense situation because every now and then I would hear shouts or I would hear some sounds from above me and I had to look back over my shoulder and wonder what was going on and on a couple of occasions saw a couple of Arabs up there talking with Charlie Gross and with Mark. On one occasion I had had to manipulate this new recorder I had to buy because the battery on my old one had worn completely out. And unbeknownst to me, I did about a 12 to a 14 minute segment from the Bible and then looked a little later on and found out that the recorder hadn't been on, and I had missed that part. I wanted to explain that because later on when I timed it, I found that I only had 42 minutes on that tape recorder under those conditions. So with that explanation, so you will understand the difficulty of trying to sit there and sort of uh, be out of sight and unobtrusive and with the wind blowing my hair, blowing the pages of my Bible, sitting there with my briefcase beside me on those stone steps overlooking the old city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, 
we managed somehow to bring back to you that little tape cassette of what I went through on that day concerning the sufferings of Christ, and as I say in the beginning of the program, a very terrible heresy that has begun to be taught by the parent church organization that when they partake of the bread, the Passover, they do not anymore see the rich symbolism of the broken, beaten, and bloodied body of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin that brings on disease. They do not see a sacrifice efficacious for our healing, but instead are encouraged by their leadership to think about the analogy of the bread being the body, which is the church. And I deal with that at some length in this sermon tape you're about to hear. So now, let's go to that sermon tape I did on that windy afternoon overlooking the old city from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Greetings, everyone, from Jerusalem. I am seated on some steps just below the Intercontinental Hotel on the Mount of Olives. Immediately in front of me is an ancient cemetery with stone sarcophagi by the hundreds steeply terraced down a hill to the bottom of where the brook Kidron used to run, long since dried up and only seasonal during heavy rains. And then immediately above that, several terraces filled with ancient olive trees. And then above that and immediately below the old wall of the ancient city of Jerusalem, another cemetery, this one Jewish. Off to my left, I can see the excavations at the south wall by the Dung Gate, and I'm looking directly across at the gilded top of the famous Dome of the Rock, and just to its left, the very dull top, the dome of the famous Al-Aqsa Mosque. I've been in Israel now for about one week. Yesterday I had the opportunity to interview Yitzhak Rabin, former Prime Minister of Israel, and just before that I had the opportunity to interview the equivalent of Brent Scowcroft, as he is to George Bush, like the official press secretary, administrative assistant, to Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir. A couple of days earlier I was over here interviewing in East Jerusalem some of the Palestinian leaders, and we drove to Bethlehem to interview the mayor of Bethlehem, who, though a Christian, nevertheless espouses the cause of the Palestinian people. We hope to be able to bring back to the United States several different television programs from Israel, not only in the wake of the James Baker visit here and the many sensational headlines about a window of opportunity for peace in the Middle East, about final settlement of the so-called Palestinian question, and all of the hopes and dreams of millions of people who are sick and tired of seeing this sputtering powder keg of the Middle East erupt into full-scale war every few years, and the most recent one, of course, causing tremendous anxiety, and in some few cases at least, great pain and suffering on the part of American families, even though our casualties were miraculously light. But certainly the war in the Gulf was not a small thing, but the greatest war that the United States had been involved in since Vietnam. We don't want to continue to do that time after time. So the quest for peace is on everyone's mind. I was asking all the relevant questions about whether or not the Israeli government is going to be willing to swap territories for peace and, of course, immediately get the same answer that I've always been given about the fact that they didn't have any peace from 1948, when the Jewish state first came into being, until 1967, when, without warning, 
the combined Arab states from Egypt to Syria and Lebanon all around Israel attacked Israel on three fronts, and Israel, in a purely defensive war, ended up owning and possessing the old city of Jerusalem and this Mount of Olives where I am seated right now, and of course all of the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and the Gaza Strip. From that time on, the United Nations resolutions, first resolution 242, that was worded almost identically to the resolution 660 that called for the unconditional withdrawal of Iraq from Kuwait, and later on resolution 338, which really merely reaffirmed what 242 said. And these resolutions are continually quoted by the leadership of the Palestinians as being the legal document to which they point, which says that the Israeli government needs to get out of the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and the Gaza Strip. Well, when I asked Mayor Teddy Kollek the other day of Jerusalem, are you willing to give the old city of Jerusalem back to the Arabs in exchange for a peace pact and to allow the creation at last of a Palestinian state? And he said, never. And again, I asked, phrasing it a little differently, a little later on in the interview, would you be willing to withdraw in part from the West Bank? And he said, not one inch. And this is the view of the current Israeli leadership. There are some moderates who would like to see certain portions of the West Bank perhaps given to the Palestinians for the creation of a Palestinian homeland, but none of them want to see a completely sovereign state right in the very heart of Israel and where Israel would once again withdraw to the borders of the pre-1967 war. In the power vacuum that is now beginning to emerge in Iraq with Kurds in the north and Shiites in the south, and the potential of Iraq becoming another Lebanon torn by civil strife. And as I am here, I know that thousands have been dying as the remnants of the Iraqi army have been bombarding, napalming, machine gunning helpless civilians in the city of Basra and Karbala and elsewhere in southern Iraq. And so that nation is in a terrible mess. But a power vacuum has in fact been created, and already the signs are very evident that the Iranians, the Turks to some extent, Syria certainly, and to a very moderate extent Egypt, are all making diplomatic and political maneuvers trying to move into that power vacuum. As I've said for many, many years, the one most relevant prophecy to the Middle East right now is Daniel, the 11th chapter, verse 40 to 45, and also, of course, Matthew 24. In Daniel 11, when we read of the king of the south who pushes at a king of the north, as I've told you time and again, we do not yet know who is this king of the south. Uh, will he be an Egyptian? Will he be a Saudi Arabian? Will he be an Iraqi? Will he be a Palestinian? Really, we do not know the answer to that yet. And therefore, I have said that the Gulf War was nowhere mentioned in biblical prophecy, though it might actually end up contributing to the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Well, one of the main reasons I've come here to this spot is because I want to talk to you now about a very important and ugly heresy that has begun to rear its head among many thousands of believing Christians, many members of God's church who actually observe the Sabbath, the annual holy days, and who were celebrating with us on this Passover, the Passover. But they were celebrating the Passover with a difference. They have been taught for the last couple of years that the stripes of Jesus Christ, the sufferings of Jesus Christ leading up to his death are not efficacious for our physical healing, and that the belief of the church 
in calling upon in prayer the stripes of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of physical sin and for being miraculously healed when we are ill or suffering from some terrible disease or an accident or whatever is not what we should do and we're being taught that healing is merely an act of mercy from God. It's part of God's largesse, it's part of his mercy, it's part of his love toward us, but so far as us being able to claim a promise and saying, Jesus Christ of Nazareth suffered so that we can be healed or our children can be healed. Well, there had been articles circulated among many of these brethren who were beginning to believe that the stripes of Jesus Christ and the suffering of Jesus Christ were not efficacious to the physical healing that so many of us seek and need. I'll tell you this, every Friday morning when we ministers gather around the boardroom table and read the piles of letters that come in from many of you and describe some of the absolutely heart-rending conditions of, of divorce, of child abuse, of people in prison, of grandparents that are just out of their minds because their grandchildren are on drugs or have been arrested, of beatings, of stabbings, of rape, I told you of that absolutely sickening, heart-rending situation of a little girl that had been left on a bed where a party was going on, and many of you that are on the tape program, the extended church, heard my remarks that day made from Tyler of how this little girl, I don't think she was more than seven or eight years of age, maybe less, was killed by someone who came into that bedroom and raped that little baby girl. When you read letters like that, on Friday morning at our prayer breakfast and then get on your knees as we all do six seven of us sometimes more and begin to take every one of these heart-rending tearful letters before people we do call upon the stripes and the suffering of Jesus Christ of Nazareth there is a terrible heresy that is being taught by leadership of a part of God's church and these are people that are brethren who observe the Sabbath who observe the annual holy days who partake of the symbols of the Passover and that heresy denies the efficacy of the suffering of Jesus Christ of the lashes that ripped at his flesh and beat him within an inch of his life at the rejection and the treatment that he received the brutality that he underwent the torture if you will that he underwent prior to his death and actually claims that when these people are eating the bread at the Passover service, they should be thinking in their minds about the church. That is the essence of the heresy. It is the denial that the broken body of Jesus Christ is efficacious for our physical healing. It says, in, in essence, that when we kneel in prayer, we ministers that are prayer breakfast or when a minister comes to you with a bottle of oil to anoint you and to ask God to heal, that he should not call upon the actual application of the stripes and the beating, the breaking and bruising of the flesh of Jesus Christ, but that healing is merely a matter of God's love, of God's mercy. It's just a part of God's largesse or his goodness toward us. But I want you now to turn to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, and take a look again at a very familiar scripture that I'm sure many of you have been reading during the Passover service, which you will have partaken of prior to receiving this sermon, I'm sure, that I'm doing here on the Mount of Olives. It says in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. 
You ought to underline those words in your own Bible. The same night in which he was betrayed. And never forget them. Memorize them, if you will. I had to pause for just a moment. Some young Arabs are walking by below me. Uh, looked like older teenagers and an older man with them. And I waved to be friendly. And they didn't stoop to pick up any rocks. Uh, so now I am free to continue. This is quite a part of the world I'm in right now, and we do have to kind of watch around us and be careful, so I pause for a moment. Again, you ought to underline that scripture in your own Bible where it says, the same night in which he was betrayed, because that is exactly when he instituted the symbols of the New Testament Passover Supper. It is those symbols of which we partake and the rich and the deep meaning of them which renew year by year our acceptance of the complete and the total sacrifice of Jesus Christ and our commitment to Almighty God to obey Him and to accept Him not only as Savior but as our boss, our ruler, our Lord, our Master, our High Priest, and our soon coming King. Notice what Jesus Himself said and what the Apostle Paul was teaching to these Gentile Christians in Corinth. He said, I received that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, it took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Now, first of all, what is a remembrance? Well, a remembrance is a memorial, and just like annually we observe Memorial Day or President's Day or Veterans Day or any other event, whether we're talking in a family sense of a birthday or a, an anniversary or the date of one's beloved parent's death or something of that nature, how often do we observe it? Not every Sunday morning, not once every morning like some churches do at Catholic Communion, uh, not four times a year or quarterly when it seems to suit us, but in commemoration or remembrance, and therefore it is and always has been in God's church, an annual celebration. Now notice what Jesus said. He broke the bread. Why did he break it? That was a physical act of breaking it and then saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. By no remote stretch of the imagination did Jesus imply this represents the church. And yet here is a grave and a terrible heresy that has begun to be taught directly in publications to members of God's true church, a part of God's true church, people who do observe the weekly Sabbath, who do observe faithfully the Feast of Tabernacles, who understand the identity of Israel, who understand the truth about pagan holidays and the main doctrines of God's true church. They know there is no immortal soul. They understand about the spirit in man. They understand the entire plan of God. And yet here they are at the Passover time being taught by their leaders that when they partake of that bread or when they eat unleavened bread during the days of unleavened bread, that that bread symbolizes the church. Now, we're all aware of the analogies in many cases in the New Testament where it says the church is the body of Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul went through a great deal of explanation in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, about the parts of the body and so on. Uh, I have an Arab up above me shouting to someone. He just appeared at the top of the steps where I'm seated sort of partially out of sight here, directly across from the Dome of the Rock. And I'll keep going as I can. If I'm interrupted, well, I'll just stop and explain it to you. But Jesus Christ himself said, Take, eat, this is my body which is 
broken for you. Question. Was the body of Christ beaten with sticks, with whips, with lashes, with a cat of nine tails for you? Well, the answer is yes, it was. Well, why was it? Why did Jesus Christ allow himself to be brutalized, to be tortured, if you will, to have his flesh ripped open and to suffer the excruciating pain that went with that, and a great deal of other kinds of pain that I can talk about in a few moments, if it is not efficacious for something very, very specific. Now, let's read on and try to get this, and if I have to, to uproot myself here from the Mount of Olives because of interruptions and Arabs gathering around, I can complete this in another location somewhere in the city. In 1 Corinthians 11th chapter, it goes on to say, And the same, after the same manner also, verse 25, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, and the oftenness or the occasion is, of course, annually at the time of the Passover, he said, You do show the Lord's death till he come. Well, he has not come yet. And so he enjoined upon believers and followers of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that annually, from that time, nearly 2,000 years ago, right near where I am seated when he was rejected and betrayed in this very garden, on the top of the Mount of Olives, until he comes again to this Mount of Olives, which is going to split by a great earthquake right where I am seated, and apparently is going to reach so deeply into the bowels of the earth that there is the description in one of the minor prophets of a huge crystal clear spring that will come boiling out of the ground and flow in both directions, east and west, to heal the bloody, turgid, polluted waters of this earth following the greatest of all wars. And this is going to take place at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So he said, we are down through those generations to observe those symbols of the bread, which is the symbol of the broken body of our Savior, and the wine that is symbolic of his blood, his death, till he come. And then notice what Paul said. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Two parts, notice. Again, Paul mentioned guilty of the body and the blood. You can't read into that guilty of the church, of something involving the church. Jesus did not break the church. Jesus didn't say, take, eat the church. He didn't say, when you eat the bread, you are to think in your mind of some analogy that this somehow means the unity of the church. That is absolutely the most rotten heresy and so insulting and so despicable in God's sight to set aside a tremendous amount of the suffering, the pain, the agony of Jesus Christ, and to try to make it into some vague analogy having to do with the church. And I certainly want to brand it right here and now as heresy and to tell you that God's true church will never give in to that kind of false teaching, even though many people are apparently just going along with it. They're not questioning it. They're just letting their leaders write these things and teach these things. And when they partake of the Passover, they do it apparently in a very different way than you and I do every single year. So Paul went on and said, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. In verse 28, now verse 29, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eats and drinks condemnation, as it reads in the margin, or judgment, that is, discernment of his actions, not absolute damnation as it is in the King James English, but certainly he is condemned, not what? Not discerning the Lord's body. The Lord's body, not the church, 
And then it goes on to say in verse 30, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And what does that have to do with? What is weakness? What is sickness? What is death? It is the absence of healing, which is the forgiveness of physical sin. Don't you ever think for one moment that the broken body of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is not efficacious for the forgiveness of sins which bring on sickness and disease. Now, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, and let's begin reading in verse 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Eternal revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I've used that scripture for many, many years to show that Jesus Christ could not have been picked out of a crowd, that he was a Jew, that he looked like any normal average Jew of his time, that he was basically nondescript, he was not outstanding or so striking looking or so beautiful or fair or perfectly featured that people would say, oh, what a tremendously striking, handsome man. The Bible absolutely says no. God was not going to allow his son very God in the flesh to appeal to people in a physical sense. He was to appeal because of his character, because of his message, because of his willingness to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Now notice verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Rich words. So let's think about them. Have you ever felt despised? And what if you were despised by members of your own family? What if you were to be despised by your entire race, the very race of people to whom you felt such a tremendous affinity? What if you were despised by people with whom you grew up? What if some of your very closest friends, in Christ's case, his own brothers ridiculed him and rejected him, his own family members, sisters too, no doubt. And it says rejected of men. So it was the entire community. It was not only the religious leaders. And of course, by and large, when Jesus would heal people and the masses of people would come, as in the case of the feeding of the four and the five thousand up at the Sea of Galilee, about 90 miles north of where I'm seated here today, the masses, the little people, if you might prefer to call them, who were desperate for relief of their economic distress, who oftentimes were afflicted with demon possession or molestation, who were sick, who came to him to be healed of hideous disfiguring diseases like leprosy or deafness, dumbness, blindness, and he healed them all. Of course, they literally adored Jesus and they worshipped him and they accepted him as the Messiah and the Son of God. And yet in the last moments of his life on this earth as a human being, and prior to his death, burial, and resurrection, he was rejected, he was betrayed, and his own beloved disciples in the very night in which he was undergoing such tremendous agony and torment of soul, or of mind and of emotion, ran away and hid. And here was Jesus up on this mount, the Mount of Olives, behind me where I'm seated. I'm right at the absolute, almost at the pinnacle. I can walk over maybe 20 steps and I'll be at the very highest spot on the Mount of Olives. I've come down a little distance here where I'm on some stone steps and can be out of sight of anyone that might come by in front of the deserted and closed down Intercontinental Hotel. But I'm within perhaps a few hundred yards in one direction or another of where Jesus got up from the disciples who kept going to sleep 
and would go out and throw himself headlong on the ground and pray with such energy and with such heartbreak that he would say to his father, please remove this cup from me. Don't make me go through this. Isn't there some other way we can work it out? Nevertheless, he quickly said, thy will and not my will be done. He did this three times. The first occasion he came back and he found them sleeping. And he said something to them that chided them gently. He came back the second time and found them sleeping. When he came back the third time, he said, all right, sleep on because the Son of Man is betrayed and is about to be delivered into the hands of sinners. And by this time, I am sure he had become aware of a torchlight parade that was working its way along the pathways down below me that was climbing up through the trees and the olive groves to gain the heights up here. And at its head was Judas Iscariot, who was going to betray Jesus Christ. It also says not only was he despised, but it said he was rejected of men. That's in Isaiah 53 and verse 3. Rejected. Have you ever been rejected? Any of you who have been divorced have been rejected. And especially if you were the party who was the one, uh, you know, who was shocked and basically on the receiving end rather than the individual who might have caused it, although most divorces are, of course, pretty much uh, dual responsibility. That does not lessen the anguish and the pain. I think divorce, the bitterness between a family member, certainly what I experienced in 1977 and 78 with my father, uh, feelings of being completely rejected, where someone you love and love very, very deeply no longer wants to have anything to do with you. Someone with whom you have been so involved and uh, whom you love perhaps as much or more than your own life that now despises you. Well, I think we all know that you go through feelings of absolute bitterness of soul, of anguish, of uh, such upset emotions inside that some people become suicidal. They become so depressed they just cannot handle rejection. But it says Jesus Christ suffered all of this. It says he was a man of sorrows. How do you like to go around all the time sorrowful, downcast, everything is a drab, dull gray, nothing seems to work out all right, there's never any opportunity to smile, there's never any opportunity for ebullience and joy and happiness and feelings of accomplishment and like it's a wonderful day and it's going to be a better day tomorrow, but instead, like you're under a weight and like everything is just trouble and pain and suffering all around you. And I'll tell you this, as I mentioned before a few minutes ago, when we get these letters and we gather around on our Friday morning prayer breakfast and listen to some of the heartache and the sorrows through which many of you brethren and other people go and listen to the tales of people's stricken and wretched lives, it does make you sorrowful. You are, are put upon with a heavy burden that you feel, that you share, that you, you empathize with. And it says here that Jesus carried our sorrows. Now let me ask you, and it's so obvious on the face of it, and I remember preaching about this before, perhaps at the Feast of Tabernacles a couple of years ago, when I had a sermon entitled, Christ's Lonely Sacrifice. When you are empathizing with someone else, if you love someone very, very deeply, as we all do, members of our family, I think of my sweet little grandson, or I think of my three sons, or my wife, or other people, and they are hurting, they're in pain, they're in the hospital, they're sick. How do you feel? Well, of course, you're, 
it's just like you've got several tons on your back. It just bends you under. Uh, my son Mark was telling me just a little while ago about a very good Arab friend of his here named Youssef and uh, lived over back of the Mount of Olives somewhere. He had been in their home on a num uh, number of occasions. Well, Youssef had come to the United States and uh, had married, and Mark uh, was going to run on here in a little while and go over to uh, where she used to live to see if he could get her telephone number, uh, his telephone number, I'm sorry, because he lives apparently somewhere in the Charlotte, North Carolina area now, moved to the United States and married an American woman. But Mark was telling me that on the day he was to leave for the United States, an Arab living over here in East Jerusalem in the uh, Mount of Olives region, his 90-some-year-old mother sat on the curb and just looked like she was in agony and pain at seeing her son, who was in his middle or late 20s, leaving this country and going to the United States to make a new life for himself. And Mark told me that that elderly lady died about three weeks later. And that certainly, just now crossed my mind, is an outstanding example of how someone can be so burdened emotionally by pain and by feelings of loneliness and so on that it can literally affect you physically to the point you can become sick or even die. So here we're reading about the sufferings of Jesus Christ, of how he was despised of his own family members, his own kin, his own race, rejected of men, how his own disciples fled from him and couldn't really share with him and drain away from him by their support, uh, by hugs, by embraces, by a, a look and a steady hand that said, Master, I understand what you're going through. I, I wish I, I could help you some way. Instead, they argued about which position they should have in the kingdom. They did not seem to remotely understand what he was going through. They weren't there for him when he needed them. And it says, as if we were taking part in that. Look at the scripture in Isaiah 53 and verse 3. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Then it goes on to say, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, when did he do this? Is it the church that does that? Does the church bear our griefs? Did the church die for us? Does the church carry our sorrows? No, Jesus Christ did. And it says, Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And then verse 5, But he was wounded, and the verse actually should read, He was tormented. And you know that that really means tortured? That the original Hebrew, tormented, means really severely wounded, not just a few little cuts and nicks and bruises here and there that didn't hurt, but we're talking about deep wounds, and we're talking about an incredible amount of pain. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, plural, many different iniquities, and many of those sins and iniquities do bring upon us physical debility, suffering, accidents, disease, and sometimes early death. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And it actually says in the margin, bruises, with his bruises. In other words, exactly as we read a few minutes ago in 1 Corinthians 11th chapter, when Jesus took bread and he broke that bread, in a sense a, a kind of a, a violent act. Here is a whole loaf and suddenly it is shattered, it is broken, it is torn apart. 
he handed it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Brethren of God's church, other people who are hearing this sermon that I'm delivering here from Jerusalem on this day, if there is any point I can get across to you, it is that when you receive and accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you accept far more than that split moment in time, that brief moment in time, when he died. It is not only his death, it is his entire sacrifice. And that sacrifice included rejection, it included the attitudes of other people that hurt him deeply, emotionally, and mentally. It included the loneliness, the, the feelings of, of despair, of abandonment, of desertion. It included physical pain, hours upon hours of it, all night long and into the next afternoon of severe, terrible beatings of lacerations and cuttings. It included that beating. And when, in fact, you partake of the broken bread, that unleavened bread on the Passover, and whenever you eat unleavened bread during the seven days of unleavened bread, and you should eat some unleavened bread every single one of those seven days, you are eating a symbol of Jesus Christ's broken body, a symbol of the fact that Jesus said he was the bread of life, that we are to imbibe, and that is a mystical and a spiritual statement, of course, his flesh and drink of his blood. Not, not literally, of course, but what it stands for, what it signifies. Don't ever swallow the line that is actually being taught here and there in God's church today, not the Church of God International, but brethren who are Sabbath keepers who observe the Feast of Tabernacles and who understand, basically, the annual holy days and who are being taught by their leaders that that bread symbolizes in some strange way the Church. Surely you can see by these and other scriptures it symbolizes nothing of the kind. It symbolizes the sufferings of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. For you see, you are a partaker not only of the blood of Christ, but of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself warned all of us, if they have rejected me, they will reject you. If they believe me, they will believe you. But they didn't believe him, they rejected him. And when he says the time will come when they will put you out of their churches, the time will come when those that will kill you will think they are ridding the world of an ungodly wretch, it says they will think they are doing God a service. Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, some of us are probably at some time in our lives going to become companions of Christ in suffering. We need to understand that. We need to be deeply prepared for it. Certainly we don't want it, and even as Jesus flung himself headlong here on the Mount of Olives and prayed that his Father would remove that from him so we can pray that Jesus Christ of Nazareth will grant us that we do not need to undergo that kind of suffering. I don't know if you can hear the military Israeli Air Force jet that is going overhead the city of Jerusalem right now. I'll pause just for a moment and see if you can. There are some noises, as I've said, as I have gone along talking to you here today that I've had to contend with. Uh, I don't know if you got the braying donkey in the background on one occasion or on another occasion when some Arabs came a little close and were shouting, and I don't know if that intruded into the microphone. But at least, even though it is sometimes difficult to keep one's concentration and to talk in a situation like this, it is, on the other hand, 
tremendously inspiring. First of all, to have the Bible open here, the pages blowing in the breeze, to look directly across, as I am now, at the old city of Jerusalem and the Dome of the Rock, to see these incredibly famous buildings and this environment that has been the focus of the world's attention for these many, many years, for the nearly 2,000 years now of Christian New Testament history, and that city, which is going to be the site yet of some of the most monumental events in the history of the world. It is right here that a temple is to be built. Uh, we will be bringing you, hopefully, in written form, because I have a brochure coming out very quickly that I've announced in a third-class letter, will a temple be built soon in Jerusalem? Uh, we have interviews we will excerpt from uh, Gershon Solomon, who is the head of the Temple of the, uh, or I should say the faithful of the Temple Mount, the group that precipitated a bloody riot in which about 21 Palestinian youths were shot to death by Israeli uh, forces back about two or three months ago, which was an international incident. They were throwing stones at Solomon and his followers who were marching up right there toward the Wailing Wall, near near it, there at the south wall of, of Herod's uh, wall that surrounded the temple that was here during Jesus' time, and they were trying to lay a symbolic cornerstone. And that so enraged the Arabs who fear the Jews will someday dismantle the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock that this rock-throwing incident occurred in which a massacre then uh, took place. And when I was interviewing one of the leading Palestinian intellectuals the other day, uh, Mr. Faisal Husseini, there on his wall was a painting of splattered blood, of just drops of blood, and each one numbered, about 21 of them, symbolic of one of those young Arabs who died, and beneath it, it said it was in commemoration of that massacre there on the Temple Mount and gave the date. So I know, and I believe you know, that right here in Jerusalem, great and monumental events are yet to take place. We believe a temple is to be built. We believe the Pope from Rome is eventually going to move into that temple to declare that he will guarantee the peace of Jerusalem, and that means there are yet more upsets not only ongoing guerrilla attacks and this terrible infatada, as it's called, where the Arabs are painting graffiti on everything and stoning and stabbing. There were four Israeli women stabbed to death at a bus stop here in Jerusalem about three days ago. There's a young girl in the hospital this morning who was stoned when she was riding along as a passenger in a car, and a stone came in and fractured her skull and cut her deeply. There was a 70-year-old furniture store owner in a little shop right here in Jerusalem. An Arab came into his store yesterday late afternoon, uh, ostensibly to look at some furniture, took him into a back room, and stabbed him to death. His wife, coming to look for him, found her beloved husband of 50 years lying in a pool of blood. Truly, this is a city of hatred, of murder, a city of tension, of wrath, and yet, strangely, here I am in Jerusalem, the place where Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, came and cried over this city and said, O Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you like a mother hen would her chicks, but you wouldn't have it that way. Therefore, he said, your house is left unto you desolate. And all around me, on the Mount of Olives, down in the Valley of Kidron, and there in the old city, is rubble, trash, desolation, an ugly botch on the surface of the earth, for believe it or not, there is nothing holy about Jerusalem today. In fact, in the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation, it says that this city is, quote, that great city called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. 
So far as God is concerned, this city is just like Sodom and Egypt today. It is not holy in his sight, in spite of the fact that the three great monotheistic religions fight over it continually and their holy places. Well, I'm going to sign off now. I've enjoyed this session with you, sitting out here in the open air with the breeze rustling through my hair, and once in a while hearing a braying donkey in the background, having some Arabs look over the wall to wonder what I'm doing, and keeping a keen eye out because both Charles Gross and Mark have been watching me uh, while I'm uh, doing this sermon, this chat with you for a while to make sure that no one interrupted. And I'll hopefully be talking to you from the pulpit in Tyler, God willing, in a matter of a very few weeks now. I hope that you have enjoyed a different kind of a sermon where obviously I'm not standing in a pulpit but seated here looking out over the old city of Jerusalem and holding a handheld tape recorder. God bless you all. I hope you have enjoyed this brief review of some of the scriptures involving Christ's sacrifice and you've come to understand much more that that sacrifice includes his rejection, his loneliness, his anguish and pain, his suffering, his beating, and that those bruises are efficacious for our healing. And when we partake of that bread, it means we can get on our knees and we can say, Father, the body of your Son, Jesus Christ, was broken to pay for these sins, and we call upon you to apply his stripes and his broken body so that our beloved loved ones, our children, our grandchildren, we ourselves, can be healed. I hope to be talking to you again fairly soon from the United States, and I'll sign off now from Jerusalem.